Please stand for the reading of God's Word. First Peter three, thirteen through 22 Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your heart honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So that, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formally did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of God. Good morning, church family. Let's bow our heads one more time and come before the Lord. Our Father, I'm conscious this morning of the reality that you are in control and that you are a good, good God who knows every single need, every single joy that's here. And so, God, we ask that you would remind us that you are God today. I pray you'd help us to honor Christ. I pray you'd give us insight into your word and help us to live in light of whatever you say. Thank you, God, for your goodness. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. In our text, Peter poses a question. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? That's an important question. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? There are some questions where the right answer may not be immediately clear. Just one of those questions. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? How many of you have ever been hurt 
or harmed or spoken ill of or demeaned because you try to do the right thing. Anybody? Yeah, I see a bunch of hands going up. You bring up a difficult conversation with a friend or with a spouse and they resent you for it. You try to stop a bully or an abuser and they turn on you. You give up the pleasures and earnings that your background or education have afforded you to take the gospel to the unreached and you find yourself in deep spiritual warfare that threatens your health and safety and the health and safety of those that you love. Jesus was the one person who was always zealous for what was good. And he still is. Yet there were a lot of people who wanted to harm him and mock him and whip him and spit on him and nail him to a cross and kill him. Yet Peter has the audacity to ask the question, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? What our text is going to tell us today is that when we honor Christ as holy, when we honor Christ as the one who went down, down to the depths of pain and chaos and evil, when we honor Christ, Christ as the one who rose, rose victorious over every fallen angel and principality and evil, when we honor Christ the Lord as holy, as the unique conquering Lord of the cosmos, when we honor Christ as holy, nothing can harm us. Absolutely nothing can harm us. When the German church was caving to aggressive nationalism and sought to equate national identity with Christian identity, the confessing church maintained allegiance to only one. They honored Christ the Lord as holy. And one pastor in the confessing church Helmut Tillich had this to say, everything, literally everything, happens very differently from what we imagine. Everything, literally everything, happens exactly as we dare to hope in those moments when we show the greatest abandon in our faith in Jesus Christ. When Tillich says everything, think of the suffering he has seen and heard, of, heard about. 
Millions of men and women and children murdered in cold blood by an evil regime dedicated to hedonistic fervor that annihilated everything in its path. And he says everything, literally everything happens very differently from what we imagine. And everything, literally everything, happens exactly as we dare to hope in those moments when we are totally abandoned to trust Jesus Christ with everything that we are. Church, my friends, my family, Jesus is victorious. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, is victorious. Our plans, our strategies may fail, but Jesus is victorious. We may suffer and we may die. And Jesus is victorious. And therefore we are too. Thinking that suffering, that the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus is only about you may leave you with little faith to honor Christ. But the reality is that the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus demonstrated Jesus' cosmic power over everything evil and everything that would consider trying to stop the movement of God's kingdom. Now, the gospel is about you. The suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus is about you. And that is glorious news. Look with me at verse 18. Memorize this verse, friends. For Christ also suffered for sins. Once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. This is a magnificent truth. Jesus the righteous one, the one who never sinned, he never broke God's law, the one who never did anything wrong, the one who always took care of people, the one who always took care of those in need, the one who fed the hungry and healed the sick and raised the dead, the one whose entire life was characterized by love for God, love for the hurting, concern for the marginalized, the one who stood up for the abused and offended the tormented, this Jesus suffered. Was it that he deserved to suffer? No. Was it that he liked suffering? No. Why did he suffer? It tells us right here. He suffered so that he might bring us to God. Oh, isn't that good news? The psalmist tells us that in the presence of God there is fullness of joy. 
There is life everlasting. God is the fount of all joy. He's the steadfast rock who is never shaken. God is the provider for all of creation. But Isaiah 59, 2 tells us that it's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. God made us for communion with himself. He made us for life. He made us for joy. He made us for life in his presence. But our sins have cut us off from God. Yet Jesus suffered so that he might bring us to God. Listen, there are some people you can't just approach. Not just because of COVID. But there are some people you can't just approach. In 1991, I found myself in England. A few miles outside of London, living in a little town called Guildford. And one day, my family and I decided to take a trip to Buckingham Palace. And we get to Buckingham Palace, the Queen's dwelling. You ever been to Buckingham Palace? You ever had a chance to go? It's, it's a pretty fascinating place. Massive palace with a massive gate, with massive soldiers, with massive hats on their heads, and massive ak 47 there's a line stretched out in front of the gate. I think it was a yellow line. And if you cross that line, those soldiers are going to have something to say to you. Something not very nice. Because you're getting too close. You're getting a little too close to the queen. And one lady, who happened to be there on the same day that I was there, had a beautiful sandwich lunch. She had packed for herself because she was going to go to Buckingham Palace. And it was a hot day, probably mid-July, and she decided she didn't want to eat her lunch in the blazing hot sun. And she saw a rock that happened to be right in the shade, and she wanted to go eat her lunch in that shade. So she took her sandwich, took her lunch, and she went over to that rock, and she sat down and started to eat her sandwich. But that rock was behind that line that was close to that gate. And that soldier with the big hat and the big AK-47 came over to her and scared the bejeebies out of her. And I don't know if she was hungry for her lunch. Because what that soldier had been trained to do is to protect his queen. You see, not many people could get close to that queen. If you want to get to the queen, somebody has to bring you to the queen, because not just anybody can approach the queen. She had layers of guards making sure that her presence was not contaminated because of everyday sandwich eaters like that lady. That's where the analogy breaks down, because God isn't concerned with his own contamination. God is holy, and his holiness is so glorious that nothing can possibly contaminate him or his presence. We can't come before God, not because of some deficiency in him, but because of his holiness will destroy us because of our sin. Do not let God speak to us lest we die, Exodus 20, verse 19. But Jesus suffered that he might bring us to God. To get to God, you need an escort. Not anybody can just run up on God. And thank God we have one. One. All we need is one. All we need is one. All we need is an only begotten son. All we need is one. 
and he suffered to bring us to God. In Christ, we are forgiven. We are cleansed. We are given the righteousness of Christ so that now we draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Get there. What do we find? Mercy and grace to help in time of need. Isn't that good news? We can eat our sandwiches in peace, friends. Because Jesus is our escort. The gospel is about you. But the gospel is also about more than you. Let's keep reading in verse 18. He might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which... He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. What is going on right here? You ever have one of those moments when you're reading the Bible and you realize the world is much bigger and the reality is much more different than you thought it was? You ever read Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis? It's that moment when Lucy comes to you and says, I've been hanging out with Fonz. And you're like, excuse me? And you go talk to the only adult that you know in the house. And he says, she's probably telling the truth. And you're like, reality must be a little bit different than what I thought it was. I remember the first time I heard this, this uh, sermon on this passage. Somebody preaching on this text. And I had one of these moments. The spirits in prison during the time of Noah. What in the world is Peter talking about? Well, I promise you that I will not sufficiently answer all of your questions. So you can plan to study this passage a little bit more this week. But what I want you to hear is what, the, I think this, what Peter's trying to say, which is this. That Jesus is more victorious than you thought. Jesus is more victorious than you thought. The background of this text is Genesis chapter 6, the story of God flooding the earth to bring his just judgment on pervasive evil. And in the first six verses, you can go read them, but in the first six verses, you're going to read these words. You're going to hear, the Son of Man came in to the daughters of, sorry, sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. And what many scholars are going to say is that this is a difficult passage to understand, but it seems that the sons of God are angelic beings. Fallen angels, rebellious angels who came to earth in human form and had children with the daughters of man, with human women. Angels had relations with women and bore children. The women bore children. And these children were some kind of a unique angelic human race that had a superhuman might of some sort. Giants. These creatures were irredeemable and thus God in his mercy flooded the earth as judgment. Now, that's more than what you thought was going on at the flood when you heard it back when you were in preschool that I encourage you to keep studying. Now, that's strange. But it seems to fit the description that Peter is going to give in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, when he says that God brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. The world of the ungodly. A world that had been rebellious against God. And it seems to fit with some of these, what some of these scholars are saying. And what our text says is that Jesus 
when he was raised in the spirit after his resurrection, went and declared a proclamation to these spirits in prison. What was that proclamation? What was that declaration? Well, Peter doesn't tell us very clearly, but it seems that Jesus is declaring his victorious conquest over every earthly and satanic power that would rise up against God. Where am I getting that? Well, we can see it in verse 22 of our text. His who, being Jesus, has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. When any three-year-old calls out to Jesus and says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. They are not just talking about children's stuff. They're talking about a cosmic reality that Jesus is the one who is victorious over every evil and he loves me. Which means nothing can threaten me. Nothing can harm me. If God is for me, who can be against me? Jesus is on the throne. Jesus reigns over heaven and earth. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. And, this text helps us understand, under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we say Jesus saves, we are saying I have new life in Christ. We also have the guarantee that life with God is a victorious life. It's a conquering life. At your baptism, church, you entered into a pledge It says, baptism now saves you. It says, you've entered into a pledge that your allegiance has shifted from honoring yourself or any other power or authority to Jesus. That's the appeal he's talking about. At your baptism, you declare that your old life has been crucified with Christ and you are now living in the resurrection of Jesus. You are alive with him. You participate in his resurrection. You participate in his victory. This is not dependent on your circumstance. This is not dependent on how you feel. This is not dependent on if you prayed this morning. This is not dependent on if you're finishing your yearly Bible reading plan. It's not dependent on you. You participate in the resurrection of Jesus because of Jesus. Not because your works earned you anything. 
We need to hear this. <laughs> I want you to turn to your neighbor. Just say, you are victorious. We got to get this. You are victorious. Because Jesus reigns. Since we appeal to God for a good conscience, we get our belief of what is right and wrong from Jesus. Our allegiance has shifted. In the garden, we said we wanted to look to ourselves as the determination of right and wrong. But in baptism, we say that Jesus determines that for us. We say that Jesus is a good place to look for what is right and what is wrong. Because he reigns right now with all authority and with all power. What is the remedy for fear, for anxiety, for humiliation? Jesus reigns. Let's look back at verse 13 of our text. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Verse 17. It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Those can be scary words. For righteousness sake. If it should be God's will that I suffer, what do you mean? When I came to Christ, didn't I come to a life of ease, of pleasure, of happiness? Yes, eventually. But God's got work to do. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Why? Because God has promised that when Jesus was raised, we were raised with him. Which means every time we suffer, it is light and momentary affliction. But we have an eternal weight of glory that awaits us. We are blessed When we suffer for righteousness' sake, we commune with Jesus, who suffered not for his own sin, but for ours, to bring us to God, to give us life in Christ, to unite us with himself. So when we suffer, we have no need for fear. We have no need to be troubled Because Jesus is with us. He's a good God. Now Peter here is riffing off of Isaiah chapter 8 when he says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Honor Christ the Lord is holy. Riffing off of Isaiah chapter 8, which is a, a chapter in which Assyria, Isaiah is saying Assyria is going to come and and demonstrate God's just justice on his own people. But he reminds God's people that even if Assyria comes, Emmanuel, 
God is the God who's with you. And so he says, honor the Lord of hosts as holy. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be dismayed. I want to tell you, church, that whatever is troubling you today is no match for Jesus. Whatever is afflicting you today can't stand before Jesus. We always stand on steady ground when our hope is in Jesus. He's the stability of our times. So we honor Christ as the Holy One. We honor Christ as the unique one. We honor Christ as the one who is set apart, who's been given all authority. And therefore, when we suffer, when we're afflicted, what does that mean that we do? I think what our text is teaching us is that we apply the reality that Jesus is on the throne with words that honor Christ and behavior that honors Christ from hearts that honor Christ. Words that honor Christ and behavior that honors Christ from hearts that honor Christ. Verse 15, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Listen, it's going to be strange when you bless the people who curse you. It's going to be strange when you give thanks in the midst of affliction. It's going to be strange when fear comes upon you. And instead of screaming that into the void of social media, raise your voice to Jesus. It's going to be strange. It was strange to Peter's audience when they suffered with hope. It was strange when Peter, in the book of Acts, suffered with hope. And when he was asked why to keep preaching, he says, we can't help it because Jesus is on the throne. When someone asks you to give a reason for why you continue to hope in the midst of suffering, we do it with gentleness and respect. I think what he's talking about here is with meekness, recognizing that I am at the center of my reality, that Jesus is on the throne, and he is my strength, and with respect. In other words, with reverence toward God. Do your words honor God as holy? Do they respect God when, you, when you're suffering, even when you're being slandered? Do we respect God, honor God, revere God, set apart Christ as holy, even when we're being abused and neglected and slandered? That's what he's calling us to. Because there's a promised vindication for the saints of God. There's a promised vindication. So our words honor Christ. And we maintain a behavior that honors Christ. Look at verse 16. Having a good conscience that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. We want to maintain a walk, a lifestyle that honors Christ in the midst of whatever we might be going through. 
Why? Because Christ is still on the throne. Christ didn't leave the throne. He didn't stop having control just because the waters are up to our neck. I was meditating this week in the Psalms. I shared this with our staff. I think I said this with our staff this past week. No, I shared it with a buddy of mine from Inner City Church. If some of you want to ask me this week, how are you feeling? I finally, most of all, I can't give an answer to that question because I don't think very much about what I'm thinking about. So in community group, I'm always the last one to share about how the week was. I got to look back at my calendar and see what actually happened during the week. But this week I knew what was happening. So my buddy asked me, hey, how are you doing? I said, here's the word. It's inundated. I am inundated. I am swamped. I'm flooded. The water is up to here. But I read this week in Psalm chapter 65. And what Psalm 65 talks about, it says that God rules over the waves. He rules over the waters. And then it goes in to talk about how God uses the river to water all of the earth, to provide abundant life, to make things grow. And he, he called me in that morning as I was meditating to switch my perspective. He said, the waters may be up to here, but what growth are the waters bringing about that you may not see right now? What am I watering through this flood? See, a flood can be terrible. We see that all around the world right now. But sometimes a drought is worse. And when we've planted something in the ground and we see the rain come, that's good news, not bad news. So maybe, just maybe, the flood that you're experiencing, Chauncey, the inundation that you're experiencing, maybe it's bringing about a growth that you don't yet see. Maybe your inundation is reminding you that you're not the God of the waters, that you don't have it all under control, and that's the way I meant it to be. Because when the rain and snow fall down from the earth, they do not return without watering and bring about the good growth that God has in mind. What's flooding you? What's inundating you? What do you need to release? What control? What flood might God be bringing you through? He brought you through the waters once, Peter says. That was baptism. What might he be bringing you through now? What flood is up to your neck? What do you need to release control of? What do you need to call on God to be God of? 
See, if my heart is honoring Christ as holy, Christ as Lord, it's going to affect the way I talk. It's going to affect the way I behave. It's going to affect the way my heart sees my circumstances. What's the remedy for fear and anxiety and even humiliation? Jesus is on the throne. And Jesus is worthy of worship. Church, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good? No one. Which might mean going to that people group you've been praying for. Which might mean moving to that neighborhood you've been praying for. Which might mean taking that job you've been praying for. Which might mean releasing that relationship you've been praying about. I don't know what it means for you. But who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good? No one. Not if Jesus is on the throne. He is your righteousness. He is your vindication. He is your hope. He won't let you down. Let's pray. Our Father, we confess that sometimes the waters are really deep. It's been raining for 40 days and 40 nights. The waters are really deep. But it don't surprise you. I know some of my friends are inundated. And I pray that you this morning would be liberating them to trust you, to honor you, to keep walking with you, to keep talking about you, to keep reminding their hearts of the gospel that they are raised with Jesus. God, shepherd your people. Bind up the brokenhearted. Remind us of who we are. Bless your people. Keep us unified as we walk with you. God, thank you that you're the Lord, the God over the waters. Thank you, Jesus, for walking on them. Help us to trust you. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.